Good day. You are listening to Free City Radio. This is the 63rd edition, and it is Tuesday, the 12th of October. I'm Stefan Christoph uh, in Montreal. I wanted to share this week an interview with an investigative journalist um, who works with the Egyptian-based publication Mada Masr. Sharif Abdul Kadus uh, has been reporting on the repression taking place in Egypt under the authoritarian government of Abdul Fattah el-Sisi um, over recent years. This interview focuses on the ways that the Egyptian government has uh, been involved in repression that targets uh, independent journalists, including Mada Mas, where Sharif works, which is one of the most in- important uh, independent uh, news websites, which also covers culture uh, in Egypt. Um, Sharif has reported widely also on the realities of prisoners in Egypt. Also, Mother Mas has covered this lately. Um, an important al- element of this conversation, I think, is the ways that the current situation in Egypt is mediated by uh, the relationship between the Egyptian state and Western uh, powers, so particularly the EU and uh, the United States. Um, the reality is that um, there is an economic, military, political complicity between the Egyptian government of Sisi um, and the military power that is backing that government in Egypt with Western uh, governments, but also uh, corporations from the military-industrial complex. That is uh, including the intelligence service in Egypt, where actually, as we hear in this discussion with Sharif, one of the companies that is involved in pushing for surveillance online um, towards Egyptian citizens, um, the mechanisms of that surveillance is actually partially um, set up by a Canadian corporation. So all these points are addressed. This is Sharif Abdul Kadus of Madamas here on Free City Radio. Thank you for taking the time um, to speak on Free City Radio. I really appreciate it. Mother Mas has been uh, an integral voice for um, movements for social change in Egypt. I mean, uh, highlighting perspectives from social movements, but also to look critically at the human rights situation in Egypt. It came about in the context of the revolution. Um, if you could just like introduce for, for us a bit about the project and, and where things are at today. Well, Mother Mas is... Uh the leading independent media outlet in Egypt, and I would say one of just two independent media outlets currently uh, operating in the country. Uh, it was uh, started in 2013, um, right around the time of the coup, uh, where Abdi Fattah al-Sisi and the military overthrew uh, President Mohamed Morsi um, in uh, on July 3rd of 2013. And since then, Mada Masr has uh, been one of the few places in Egypt that has uh, been able to operate and offer uh, adversarial journalism. Uh, we cover aspects of uh, both how power works, uh, how the state works, uh, the, the police and the army. Uh, we cover the economy, we cover culture. Uh, and it's also a place that is uh, one of the few places that's still around that is uh, building a community. Um, of like-minded people uh, who exist. And it's operating in a very um, difficult uh, 
situation for press freedom in Egypt. Um, you know, Madamasr is one of the over 500 websites that have been blocked uh, in Egypt by the state. We've been blocked our, since 2017. Uh, we put up different mirrors for readers in Egypt to be able to access it. Um, Egypt's also uh, become one of the leading jailers of journalists in the world. According to CPJ, it's the third worst jailer of journalists in the world, um, behind only uh, China and Turkey. And um, it also is operating in a landscape where um, the state is controlling uh, the media landscape, not only through censorship and intimidation, but through outright acquisition. So the General Intelligence Services, uh, which is uh, the most powerful uh, intelligence body in Egypt, has acquired, it is the largest media owner in Egypt. It acquired them through a private equity firm called Eagle Capital. And uh, this is reflected in the coverage that you see in Egypt and, for example, the daily newspapers, uh, their coverage is almost comically similar uh, in certain issues. Even the ones that aren't owned by uh, the General Intelligence Services receive, the editors-in-chief uh, receive uh, direct instructions from the uh, intelligence services on certain issues, often with the specific wording to be used. And so you can see, uh, for example, after Mohamed Morsi's death, uh, we saw the exact same 43-word piece in all the newspapers. So this is the kind of media landscape that we're operating in. And so we provide one of the few um, critical um, uh, coverage uh, outlets that provides one of the few critical voices, basically, in Egypt. So, I mean, here in Canada, um, just as a point of reference for um, foreign affairs relating to Egypt, um, major uh, military industrial corporations uh, have signed deals with the Egyptian government. Um, uh, there's also been major engineering firms that have uh, coordinated um, uh, contracts. This is within the context of the CC government. Um, SNC-Lavalin is one of them. Uh, there's also um, corporations like Bell Helicopters and CAE who have uh, defense contract relationships with Egypt. So I, I'm just bringing this up because I think, you know, what you addressed in terms of the repression of press freedom in Egypt, there's this sort of lack of headlines around what's been happening in Egypt, but this repression continues. And... Um, sort of like Western liberal governments also continue to allow these economic and also particularly military relationships uh, with the Egyptian state. Um, I'm just wondering if you could offer any critical thoughts about why looking at that is important and how that actually impacts in a tangible way uh, both journalists and human rights defenders in Egypt. Well, just on a side note also, there's a Canadian company called Sandvine uh, which uh, uh, provides a technology that Egypt uses, the Egyptian state uses, to block all of these websites. And so when, uh, you know, activists want to make expressions of solidarity with people in Egypt um, targeting or uh, these companies or, or um, exposing their role in uh, various forms of repression in Egypt is important, and Sandvine is an important player in that. But Egypt has become, under President Sisi, one of the largest... Um, procure, procurers of uh, military arms um, in the world. Uh, we are the biggest uh, purchaser of weapons from Germany. 
uh, we have deals with France that uh, some years have topped 2 billion, so have even surpassed uh, the level of aid we get from the United States and other countries like Italy, uh, the United Kingdom and Canada. And uh, these uh, relationships, uh, these arms procurements help to solidify uh, the relationship between uh, CC and these, uh, these countries and uh, basically gives him a free pass to uh, conduct uh, the kind of official policies that uh, are then overlooked by these states. I mean, we are under no kind of uh, illusion that um, states like the United States and Canada and uh, Germany are actually concerned about human rights and are concerned about uh, these kinds of issues in Egypt. But um, the selling of these weapons, which provides income to these countries, and an outlet uh, for defense contractors uh, is a, is an integral part of the relationship, and it um, and it and it indirectly then allows President Sisi uh, to steer Egypt to become one of you know Egypt's human rights record is among the worst in the world actually, and so um, these kinds of relationships continue because of these arms procurements uh, and allow them to happen. So there is a very direct relationship between the two. There seems to be contradiction regarding, like, especially within the EU, there has been some statements uh, relating to uh, human rights, particularly around the repression that the Egyptian initiative for personal rights, uh, when their offices were raided, there were statements, but these contracts weren't cancelled. So I'm just wondering if you could underline that and also the importance of like a, an outlet like Madamas trying to continue to highlight these spaces of contradictions, but also also like tangibly why that's important for um, you know the defense of human rights and and what and actually like how like you're on the ground in Egypt how that actual space of contradiction creates political space for government repression in Egypt well yes we've seen the the European Union Parliament uh, almost every year put out very critical uh, reports of Egypt's human rights record and call for uh, a banning of weapon sales. We've seen uh, the State Department in the United States every year has to put out a human rights report and documents very clearly uh, different kinds of abuses like arbitrary detention, extrajudicial killing, torture, abuse, um, all of these things. So um, what in fact, this does give some leverage to places like EIPR, like Madamas, because the state security service, which is kind of the political arm of the interior ministry, raided Madamas uh, two years ago. And we saw a groundswell and they tried to arrest, they did in fact arrest the chief editor, Lina Atalla, uh, and two other uh, uh, people who work there, but they were very quickly released. Uh, they also raided EIPR um, last fall, um, imprisoned three of their workers for um, a couple of weeks, but they were also released. And the reason that they were released was because of a lot of pressure from these governments. Um, uh, there was, uh, as far as we understand, very high level calls made to the presidency to let uh, first our people go and then also uh, from EIPR. And the reason for that is that it was a very high political cost for these governments. And it's not that they actually care uh, about human rights and, and these things because it happens to other journalists all the time. In fact, right after Nada was raided, uh, two journalists 
the next day were arrested and remained in prison for a year and a half, but they were independent journalists and people didn't know them. Um, but there is a high political cost because MEDA is known, EIPR is known, it has relationships with communities around the world, with movements around the world. And so there was, we saw in France, a very big outcry uh, against the rate of EIPR. And as well with Madamas, we saw a very big outcry in the United States as well. And so because there's pressure from the ground up on governments who support Egypt, uh, the Egyptian state and the Egyptian military, those governments then do have leverage. And because of these movements around the world and the solidarity, these governments are compelled then to uh, call on uh, the Egyptian government to back off a little bit because it makes them look so bad. So we're operating, yes, in this kind of contradictory space where unfortunately, sometimes we have to rely um, on pressure from these governments that are in, uh, in cahoots with the Egyptian government as well, but have leverage with them because, uh, because of this very deep relationship that they have. So, uh, you know, in some ways it does provide some protection. But on the ground, your um, work and others at Mother Musk continues to sort of speak tangibly and in real ways to the situation, whether it's growing economic inequality, whether it's uh, repression in the Sinai, whether it's uh, these more systemic attacks on press freedom. So I'm just wondering, like, how, how has it been going for you? I mean, you're on the ground in Egypt. Uh, how's the project going? Um, I'm sure it's, it's, a, it's a lot to carry, but there's also a strong community around the, the project Madamas. Well, we continue to work um, and we're one of the only places that does. Um, you know, they raided us and tried to kind of shut down Madamas after we printed um, an article documenting uh, internal uh, discord between President Sisi's son uh, and other kind of senior leaders of the intelligence services. And this crossed some line for them. And so they came in very hard on us. They raided EIPR after uh, they held a meeting with a bunch of ambassadors from European countries. And this came right on the heels of Biden being uh, announced the winner of the 2020 election. And so there's, there's certain things that trigger uh, the state uh, to try and act, but sometimes the political capital is too much to spend uh, on places like EIPR and Madan, and, and we were let go. So we continue to operate uh, anything that we think that is in the public interest uh, that needs to be reported, we report, uh, and we don't hold back. And there's a lot to report. Uh, as you mentioned, there's, uh, you know, there's kind of any and all opposition voices or dissident voices uh, are often thrown into prison. Um, most of them are not convicted in any kind of trial. They're held in pretrial detention, which under Egypt's penal code can last up to two years. And even then when they exceed, when they come close to the two year limit, they do something called rotation. They just put them into another case and restart the pretrial detention clock again. So we've seen activists uh, stay for many years uh, in detention. Uh, the prison conditions uh, in Egypt are very poor. Uh, there's a number of cases of medical negligence. Mohamed Morsi, the, the former president, the ousted president, died from what human rights groups have documented as medical neg negligence. Abdelmenem Abel Futuh, a former presidential candidate, has had several heart attacks in prison. And we've also seen Sisi recently announced just last week that he, he tends to inaugurate what he called an American-style prison complex 
said to be the largest prison complex in Egypt. Um, and even kind of participation in formal politics is banned outside of parties approved or in some cases directly backed by the intelligence services. So we saw some um, opposition parties come together publicly uh, a couple of years ago to form what they called the Coalition of Hope uh, to contest the parliamentary elections. The response by the state was to crack down on them, arrest most of the leading members of that coalition, and many of them remain in prison today. Uh, also, what's very frightening is we've seen a significant spike um, in executions in Egypt. So the death penalty has been used uh, much, much more. There was a threefold rise from 2019 to 2020, and it's become <clears throat> one, of the, uh, uh, one of the most frequent executioners uh, in the world. Um, and as you mentioned also, on a wider scale, there's a lot of uh, economic rights that are being taken away from Egyptians. So we've seen a series of austerity measures with subsidy cuts and tax hikes, hikes and a currency devaluation that were all put in place to secure um, an IMF loan. And this has caused high rates of inflation and unemployment. And all of this has caused the rate of poverty to increase even by the government's own statistics. Um, so, and all of these economic decisions and political decisions are being made without any public dialogue, uh, without any input from civil society or other stakeholders. Um, and we've also seen a radical kind of restructuring of the urban fabric of places like Cairo and Alexandria and other cities in Egypt, uh, where Cairo, for example, 60% of the city lives in informal neighborhoods. And um, the state has come in very strong to uh, forcibly evict residents who have lived there for in some cases decades in these informal neighborhoods. People are being forcibly relocated to government housing projects on the outskirts of the city, far from their communities and places of work. And these informal neighborhoods are demolished and government housing uh, is being built to replace them. So on many kinds of different levels, um, we're seeing uh, a very difficult situation. And of course, finally, as you mentioned in Sinai, where um, civilians are trapped between a very brutal insurgency uh, by mostly a militant group calling itself the province of Sinai, who have committed uh, massacres in mosques and churches, who kidnap residents very frequently. And on the other side, the security forces with the army and the police enforcing a very strict clampdown, engaging in arbitrary detention, um, extrajudicial killing, uh, and no reporters are allowed to enter uh, Northern Sinai to report on this. Uh, so it's a very difficult situation also to cover, although we do try and do that at Metamos. We have a Sinai bulletin where we put up news every couple of weeks on what's happening there. I guess finally, um, taking all this into consideration, um, there has been some reporting about Egypt within major international media outlets. Um, to a degree, um, but it's lacking in detail uh, and within the sort of like nuances you talked about in regards to like the way the IMF loan created economic policies that are deepening poverty in rural and urban areas, the relocation of urban communities, um, enforcement of state control. Can you just underline a bit more about Madamas and sort of what's driving the project in terms of like sharing this information and why it's important people tune in and pay attention. Well, um, you know, uh, 
Western outlets like the New York Times and the Washington Post and Reuters and the Associated Press do very important work. Uh, they do cover Egypt, uh, albeit to a much lesser degree than they used to. Uh, there's other countries that have received more focus uh, in recent years. Uh, but there's also different nature to the gaze that they have uh, on Egypt. And in, at Madha Masr, uh, we're more interested in looking very intricately and deeply at the minutiae of how power operates and how it affects people and how uh, we can bring out voices that are otherwise unheard. Um, and so, for example, we recently reported in Meda Mosque that uh, national security officers who are kind of the political police uh, have been going into prisons uh, and talking to prisoners and saying, if we let you out, what are you going to say? If we, uh, what, what will you do? And kind of uh, massaging their answers and, and then saying, okay, we'll put you on an amnesty list if you do this. So that's a very kind of specific tactic that the government's doing. They're, they are looking to release uh, some people and improve at least the impression of their human rights record. Uh, and we can talk about that at length uh, if you want, but, but it's that kind of reporting that I think uh, these other bigger outlets uh, don't really focus on. And, and that's why it's critical. And also, we also try not to just be reactionary and um, report on what's happening, but to also engage in imaginative processes of what Egypt could be like. And so we have several reporting series and projects that, for example, can imagine what um, Cairo could look like if, so the former national, um, the former party building of Mubarak, which was burnt down on uh, January 28th, stood as a monument uh, to repression in Egypt. And it's, it's kind of charred husk remained there as a reminder uh, to future autocrats. However, it was demolished. But what we did is uh, engage with a number of urbanists and um, architect, um, architects to imagine what that building could be. And so uh, we put out with drawings, uh, what the National uh, Democratic Party building could have been like, what Tahrir uh, could be developed into the main square, which was the epicenter of the uprising, what all the buildings around it could be. So we also try and um, engage in uh, imagination and to engage imagination and possibility as well, not just to react uh, to the news. And obviously, I, I, I most people listening to this will have some familiarity, but Maramas is based in Egypt and it's an Egyptian project. Yes, it's a dual language uh, outlet, both in Arabic and English. And uh, it's uh, based in Egypt, formed in Egypt with Egyptian um, reporters. And uh, we do have foreigners working with us as well on the English side. Um, and yeah, like I said, I would say it's one of two independent media outlets currently operating in Egypt. Um, and so I mean, obviously, I'm a bit biased because I work there, but I think it's a very important space and one that would, I think the coverage of Egypt would be severely affected, uh, would it be shut down? And I think the state does want to shut it down as much as possible, but it's a very high political cost for them to do that. And so they keep us kind of on the margins, try and make us invisible by blocking our website, try and make it very difficult for us to work with any partners. For example, if we try and hold a fundraiser, they go and speak to the manager of the event space and say, don't work with them, uh, various forms of intimidation and so forth. But, uh, but we are managing to exist and operate and uh, provide coverage. And I think it's important coverage for people to follow. 
And yeah, to underline what you were just saying about the ways that the government is manipulating prisoners, and you talked about um, not just the imprisonment of journalists, but more generally the whole prison system in Egypt and the mirroring with the U.S. that's happening. Um, I assume there's some reporting up on Madamas about that. Yes, uh, we just reported on that uh, that move by uh, the state to kind of release some people, but under these conditions. Uh, and we regularly report on uh, pretrial detention. There's also something interesting happening with, I think, this year of, as I mentioned before, the CC government is trying to improve at least the impression of its human rights record. This is coming on the back of pressure from primarily the United States. Um, and I would say that this is because of the left wing of the Democratic Party has started to push more strongly. And we've seen in Congress something called the Egypt Human Rights Caucus Forum, where there's more criticism uh, of the continued funding um, and backing of the Egyptian state. And so, for example, we just saw President Biden withhold $130 million in foreign military assistance to Egypt uh, and condition its release on a set of demands. Okay, so this is a very small portion of military assistance. It's 10% of one year of assistance. We get 1.3 billion every year. It also ignored Congress passed uh, a measure in uh, the spending bill that $300 million dollars um, was conditioned on a number of human rights uh, improvements, including increasing the rule of law and releasing political prisoners and so forth. And so the Biden administration kind of sidestepped that. Uh, it didn't issue a national security waiver as they usually do, but it did withhold some of the funds. So there's this, there's this game that's being played and we're seeing uh, the interior ministry and the judicial system try and I think ease up on pretrial detention. So we've seen a number of high profile people be released this year, journalists, activists, and so forth, but other people being referred to trial. Uh, so there seems to be a shift in the system a little bit. We're trying to document this, but these are the kinds of trends uh, that I think Mada is very good at focusing on that other institutions, perhaps because they're not based in Egypt and it's not their focus of coverage, perhaps miss, uh, and eventually they do catch on what we call trickle-up journalism, but but uh, but this is the importance of a, of a place like Nada. And I mean, I guess um, just finally, um, you mentioned the US and the Egyptian, Egypt Human Rights Caucus, excuse me, in, in Congress. Um, I think people might just, I just want to maybe just underline quickly, 1.3 billion annual in aid, military aid. I mean, the word aid is a strange word to use in this context, but right. yeah, but I mean, this is a longstanding situation. It's not new. Um, there is sort of this, well, not sort of, there is a neo-colonial relationship, at least with parts of the Egyptian power structure in the United States. Um, that is very important context for everything you're saying. I, I guess finally, um, you know, and that, that doesn't change with the Democrat or Republican administration in a lot of ways. Um, so yeah, I just, if, if you could underline that and why, why understanding that context is important. Right. Well, Egypt's relationship with the U S over the last 40 years has been based largely on the, the Camp David treaty when Egypt uh, signed a peace deal with Israel. And, uh, since then Egypt has been the second largest recipient of foreign aid, uh, from the United States in the world, second only to Israel. 
And uh, that relationship is uh, cemented on this peace deal. And the US in return uh, receives, um, for example, uh, preferred uh, access to the Suez Canal, um, rights over the Egypt's airspace, uh, and uh, you know what they think is a strategic ally in the region, uh, which is quote unquote stable. Um, this relationship has continued and has largely unchanged for the past 40 years, whether Republican or Democratic um, uh, administrations in power. I mean, we have to remember President Biden was vice president uh, under Obama in 2013 when Egypt committed uh, the massacre at Rabaa, uh, when they forcibly dispersed uh, a pro-Morsi sit-in uh, on uh, August 13, 2013, which uh, they killed about a thousand people. Uh, in a matter of hours in one space, what Human Rights Watch called uh, the worst state-sponsored massacre since Tiananmen Square. And, the, and at that time, the Obama administration withheld a tiny bit of aid and then restored it. So uh, I don't think anyone's under any qualms that Biden uh, cares about human rights, but there are movements because of activism and because of solidarity around the world that has pushed certain wings of the Democratic Party to be more critical. And Egypt has also become less of a strategic ally to the United States in this sense. We've seen uh, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates emerge over the last 20 years as uh, more important power brokers in the region. And so Egypt's importance as an ally has waned. Uh, however, and so we saw that when Biden came into office, he did not call Sisi. Uh, Blinken did not call uh, the foreign minister of Egypt for the first 30, 40 calls. And they only established the, you know, this kind of, uh, it's a gesture, um, you know, Trump was the, Sisi was the first person to call Trump when he was, when he was uh, inaugurated. But then following uh, Israel's assault on Gaza and Egypt's role in brokering a ceasefire, Egypt suddenly again became a strategic importance. And we saw after that brokering, Biden called Sisi twice within the space of a week. So this relationship is, is constantly kind of being pushed back and forth. Um, and, but there's very little actual solid, solid difference between, in policy-wise between, for example, President Trump and President Biden in the way they deal with uh, Egypt. There's a difference in rhetoric and rhetoric does matter. Uh, but in terms of actual policy, that's changed very little for the past 40 years, which has continued military, economic, and diplomatic backing for successive regimes in Egypt. Sharif, thanks for taking the time today. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to an interview with Sharif Abdul-Qadus of Mada Masr, which is a very important independent um, news uh, project in Egypt. They've faced serious systemic um, repression as media workers in Egypt over recent years. I really wanted to highlight their work. Uh, thank you so much to Sharif for uh, taking the time to participate in the program this week and also to give the context that you've highlighted, which is so important. This has been the 63rd edition of Free City Radio. Thank you for tuning in. To go out on the program today, I'm going to share some music um, that was recorded by the Dwarfs of East Aguza. Uh, I'll be back next Tuesday. Take care.
Thank <laughs> you.